I often tell people when I'm doing sessions at the NYSE, they say, well, what do you wish you'd done differently in your educational career? I wish I had taken classes in behavioral psychology. The one thing as a leader in a growing company is it's about changing people's behavior. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School, Idy Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to welcome you into the Kelly family and just let you know we exist to help you and your organization grow and hit milestones that you never thought possible. So if you're an organizational leader who's wrestling with a leadership topic, maybe you're in the midst of a merger, maybe you're looking or thinking about letting someone go, you know, all these tough leadership questions we would love to answer. Maybe you want to get a hold of one of our faculty, see what research they're working on, or see some trends that could be coming down the pike in the future, or you just know of an individual who make a great guest for our show, all these questions can be answered if you just send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. Well, this is a topic we've been trying to explore for the past couple of years. Uh, it's, it's this idea of as an organizational leader, you know, you've grown a business and now you're at this point of deciding, do you want to keep this company private or is it time to jump into the public sphere? Do you want to start trading your company? All of these are great questions to answer. And I believe a lot of organizational leaders start to think about in the back of their head as they're thinking of ways to grow their organization. Well, on this episode, we are going to explore if going public is right for you. And if so, how do we get there? We are honored to be joined by Steve Cakebread, the CFO of Yext and author of the IPO Playbook, an insider's perspective on taking your company public and how to do it right. I should also mention that Steve is an amazing alum from the Kelly School of Business. So Steve, welcome to the ROI podcast. Uh, Matt, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And yeah, I'm kind of excited to be back at IU for a change. Well, congratulations on releasing this book. This is a brand new book Steve just released, available where you get books on Amazon, anywhere you digest books, it is available there. And, and Steve, I want to start off our conversation with the premise of when do you decide or how do you determine as an organizational leader if going public is right for you? Because there are, you know, some organizations could either go in too soon and it could be the worst decision they make. Other organizations, it may not even fit their business model to begin with. So just from your perspective, how do you determine if going public is good for you or is right for your organization? Sure. That's a great question. I mean, I've been fortunate to work for both public and private companies. As you know, my family has a private business and, and we've stayed private for over 30 now going on almost 40 years. But at the same time, I think if you're a, a business and you have a solid business model, you know the market you're addressing, you understand your customers at whatever size, it's a great time to go public. And the reason why you go public is to get access to the capital markets. The most efficient and price effective capital is through the public markets. And yeah, you can go borrow money from your, your local bank, which we do for my family's business and fund our operations that way. But it's also as effective to go borrow money in the public markets, particularly if you're a large scale or think you're going to be a large scale business. 
And as you read in my book, I'm a very big advocate of businesses going public sooner rather than later because um, a couple things. One is you get awareness, and that, that awareness always helps your business. The day we took Salesforce and Pandora and Yext Public were the three largest lead gen days of the company and the company's history to that point in time. So that certainly helps your business. The other part, though, is looking at individuals like yourself and myself as investors. When you take a company public at, at, at the 80 to $100 million ranges, which I've typically done with all three of these companies, your stock price is going to be $10, $12, $15 a share, which means individuals like us can buy that stock and, and not spend a lot of money because people are price sensitive. Um, and to a point, if you bought Salesforce at about $12 when we went public, today that same share would be worth over $1,000. So not a bad return. The flip side is if you go too long and your stock goes out at $100, $200, $300 a share, you really leave that purchasing to institutions typically. And as a result, the rest of us don't get to participate in that type of IPO or the type of business that just went public. So I'm a big advocate of if you want to stay private, do that. But I also think the public markets are a great place for businesses to end up. Steve, I want to follow up on some of the points that you just made. Uh, to me, one of the really important underpinnings of the book is the myth you confront, which is the false impression that IPOs are overly expensive or inefficient at capturing capital investment and filled with all kinds of risks. And of course, as you just started to go down this path, there are many advantages. Um, you did note that you know that myth sort of surfaced in a big way after the dot-com bubble and bust. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet it's true that public companies have the burden of, of reporting uh, and dealing with analysts every quarter and Sarbanes-Oxley and so forth. But there's so many benefits. And I wonder if you mind uh, continuing on that line of the counter case, not just the benefits to the organization, but their real benefits to the leaders who lead these organizations and their real benefits to the economy overall. Could you give us a few more illustrations of how individuals and the economy overall benefit. Yeah, I, um, you're absolutely right in that. There's always this myth about it's too hard, it's too expensive. As I describe in my book, though, every business that's being successful is subject to some type of state and federal bureaucracy that you have to pay for anyway. And the fact of the matter is, in my experience, like I said, at my $100 million size business, when we go public, it usually costs about $4 million to get there and another $2 million on a, on a run rate basis. Quite frankly, that's not very expensive if you have a $100 million company and you can get a billion dollar market cap. So one is the cost really is, is kind of overblown. That comes from venture capital and entrepreneurs that have not worked in public companies chit-chatting in their coffee bars and other places saying, oh, this is too hard. We also, when I was with Mark at Benioff at Salesforce, we knew the disciplines that we needed as our company grew and we brought people in were better served by the governance requirements that the SEC and SOX brought in. SOX isn't overburdensome. It says, gee, somebody should approve other things that other people look at. So there's a there's kind of a, a cycle of review and approve and move on. And that should happen in a business anyway. So I'm not sure you're exercising any additional work there. You should be doing those type of things anyhow. Segregations of duties. We talk about that in my, even in my accounting class at IU. Segregation of duties was an important part of how you ran a business. So 
I'm very much of the fact that those things actually enhance and improve the business in terms of how you operate. It makes you more sophisticated. It puts the proper controls in place. It helps your employees understand, one is what's the proper process and how to go through it, but it also sets a moral standard as well. And I think that's been very, very important saying, hey, look, as a, as a company, as a group of people, as a collection of people, here's our value set that we're going to run our business at, both for ourselves and for our customers and for an investor. So I think those things all combined help. To your point in terms of getting to benefiting the public, again, I'm very big advocate of getting great businesses, shares in others' hands and individuals. I know the street calls it retail. I call it individuals because we're individuals here. And that wealth creation has been lost the last day because all moved to institutions. And now it's time to put it back in the hands of people. Right. Just just to follow up on that, you do have uh, this comment that the reduction in publicly listed companies and startups over the last 15 years has probably contributed to this gap between the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's a really important statement for the economy overall to know that this can, in fact, help improve and get us back on the path of growth for the economy. Absolutely. It was really exciting to see calendar 20 was a strong year for IPOs. You know, and we've talked, I've talked to others over the holiday weekends and stuff. And I think 2021 is going to be a stronger period for IPOs. And all of that, again, contributes to that wealth creation in the, in the United States that we have. And I think it's a key part. We can all work very hard, but you need other avenues, interest rates, which are very low today. So looking at investing in those companies that you spend your money with. I'm a big investor in Starbucks because guess where I spend a lot of my money in the mornings? Starbucks. That's a way for me to support the business, but also gain a return back from that support as well. And, you know, going back to Adi's question as she started, the myths, you know, there was obviously benefits of, of going in as an IPO, but there's also some negative myths, you know, whether that be the risks that you have to invest in, in the risks of it not taking off. Also, you know, more so from the leadership standpoint, because for a leader who's worked really hard to start this company, I mean, as you know, owning a family organization, you work really hard to get it going, but then there's this myth of as soon as you go public, you almost have to let go of the reins as a leader, you know, so I was curious, how should organizational leaders view this transition? And is there any merit to those fears that, you know, once you go public, all your hard work, you kind of let go control of the baby that you work to create? Right. I'm not so sure going public causes that. I think growth causes that, you know, as an individual in a small company, and we did this at Salesforce, I was employee number 65. We would meet for coffee every morning. We knew what each other was going to do for the next 24 hours till we met again. But that naturally changes as you add 100 people, 200, 300 people, which also means as an individual, particularly a leader founder, you need to change your style. You can't run a thousand person company the way you ran a 65 person company and you shouldn't. And so I actually think this enables you to grow and understand your role in this business and how it has to change over time. And it also enables growth for your employees. Because the other thing, you know, people join companies mostly for career growth and participate in the business. So all of that feeds on itself in the fact that as you grow, jobs get created. One, you add more people. Two, careers get created because there's a step up function in leadership. And three, you as an individual get to change because you can't do what you used to do. You need to do other things. You need to change your time horizon from how do I make payroll next week? 
to how do I run a successful company two years, three years, four years down the line. And so I think all of those are good. And, and again, all of those have to happen if you have a large growing company anyway. So being public just facilitates that a little bit more and actually helps attract individuals to your business that they may typically not have gone to if you were private. It's also true, and I believe this, and I say, I describe this in the book, different sized companies need different skilled people. And so that will naturally cause you to do different hiring and bring in different leaders. You know, in a small 65 person company, I did a lot. I was the legal counsel, I was facilities, I, I was accounting, tax, treasury, et cetera. By the time I had left Salesforce at over a billion dollars in revenue, I had one job with about seven people reporting to me, but none of it was legal, facilities, HR, et cetera, because they're specialties. So as you grow, you need to bring in specialists. And that's a natural course of a growing business, regardless of being public or private. Steve, I want to follow up on this point about the right people and, and making sure you have the team in place. You have an entire chapter devoted to the people, right. uh, which is such a critical part of an IPO process. I'm, I'm curious if you have maybe one or two mistakes that you can think of that leaders make when organizing their IPO support team. Yeah, um, th there always is some of that. One of them, the biggest one is sticking with the people that got you there. Because, And I, I know there's a loyalty factor. I know there's a familiarity factor. But most people, it's just been my experience that a team that can start from zero and work in a basement or a closet isn't the same kind of skill set and people that run a billion dollar company. And so you have to, as a leader founder, be able to step away from those folks. And th there's a time frame. I mean, at Salesforce, we had some people literally that didn't step away for 15 years, but their role got diminished and they stayed in the area of their expertise rather than trying to grow. Now there's some talented people that can grow into those jobs as well. And so, you know, the people that I hired both at Salesforce and Yex to take me public, they're still there. And they, they ran a $100 million business and now they're running almost a $20 billion business at Salesforce. So you have to pick and choose. But the thing that gets in the way is the loyalty factor clouds your decision about are the people capable of getting you to the next level? I think I talked about in my book, I went through 12 different finance teams at Salesforce as we grew. And some of them were because skill set. Some of them were because sophistication. As you grow a company that goes international, you need different people that know what actually have a passport, for example, um, and can get to countries and help you out. So uh, I, I think the loyalty factor is one of those that really gets in the way. The other one, as we previously talked about, you as a leader have to emotionally change what your job description is to do other things. And those are probably the two most critical that negate the opportunities of a company. But again, it's not being public or private. It's just leadership skills. I often tell people when I'm doing sessions at the NYSE, they say, well, what do you wish you'd done differently in your educational career? And quite frankly, the one I always come back to is I wish I had taken classes in behavioral psychology. Because at the end of the day, my accounting skills, there's a ton of CPAs running around. The auditors in a public company audit you seven days to Sunday. The one thing as a leader in a growing company is it's about changing people's behavior. And none of us get trained like that in our, in our uh, educational career. It just doesn't happen. And um, so that's the one area I would encourage all those listening, get in and get a few classes in behavioral 
change in psychology because it's that's going to be your life's job from here on out. You know, when there's any sort of change within an organization, obviously there's going to be pushback or there's going to be resistance met. And I'm sure, especially when with the major decision as do you stay private or do you go public, you know, you're going to get people on the leadership team at some point that are going to, you know, voice their objection or push back um, to try and, you know, keep everything as it is. So, you know, as an organizational leader, as you're working through this decision, what are some of the common pushbacks within organizations? And then how do you work through those uh, to get everyone on the same page? Right. You know, we had that at Pandora. I mean, we needed to go public. The board had brought me in to try and get the company public in about 12 months, which is pretty quick. And there were a number, the, the R&D guy, the marketing guy, it's like, oh, this is going to change my job. Um, you know, part of this as the leader of that whole process to get the company ready is to be, you know, somewhat thoughtful about you don't really want to change the secret sauce in the business. That's how it got there. At the other side, though, you need to put the disciplines in about changing software. I mean, every company I've been at, Salesforce, Pandora, Yex, for some reason, the engineers are changing the code in the live database and nobody knows what the consequence is. And you eventually blow up a customer. You go, gee, I shouldn't be doing that. You know, this is kind of dumb. So you, hopefully you get ahead of that. And it's just being respectful of coaching those executives and those that disagree through the process. I, I took a little bit of pride at Pandora, the engineering, the CTO came back and said, God, this public thing, I thought it was horrendous. We didn't really even notice. And so I think, again, it was a consequence of we needed processes in, in the engineering team. We didn't have to be public, but they were processes they needed to have anyway, like changing software code on a live database should never happen. They changed that process to sandbox and they had routines and quality assurance and all that. All of that would have and should have happened regardless of whether we went public. So I think that's the thoughtfulness about what makes your company really work well regardless of being public, and then what do you need to do to do to be public, those are not incompatible at all. Steve, you've already mentioned so many great uh, experiences that you've had, business experiences. I, I know you had a stint at HP, Silicon Graphics, Autodesk, Salesforce, exactly. You mm -hmm. mentioned Pandora just now, uh, D-Wave Systems, Yext. No doubt you've learned from each and every one of those experiences, but I'm curious, is there one of those that really helped shape your business model formation, the way you think about things more than the other and help shape your leadership skills and guide you more than the other? Yeah. You know, I, I venture to say that each one of those was a great learning experience for me. HP, I joined, it was a $200 million business just in the U.S. I mean, think about that now when you know what you get from Hewlett Packard today globally. And I got to experience that growth from $200 million to $18 billion before I left. I got to work with Bill and Dave in their thought process of expanding the business. I got to work with Dave Packard and working in China, actually, before China was even on the map for most people um, there. So each of those kind of helped form a bit of it. My The HP days were clearly how to lead and be an employee. And the training and development they did there was outrageous. We had Stanford University psychologists come and talk to us. At the time, I was fairly young. And I remember this, I was 35. And we had a, a Stanford psychologist for two days explaining to managers, particularly men, because again, this was in the 70s, right? How they're going to age. 
Now I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of 50 year olds, but HP was so progressive in knowing that psychologically, whether you're male or female, you, your behaviors and your thought processes and your values start to change as you get older. And the company's leadership was aging fairly quickly at the time. And I, I, I take that meeting away with me always. And remember, even today, when I look at this, hey, I'm not 35 anymore. Part of my agenda and why I like startups is because it keeps you thinking differently and you need to do that. SGI was just high tech. You know, Autodesk, I learned a lot from Carol Bartz in how to communicate. Uh, and if you know or read of her story, there's, she teaches you a lot about how you maybe shouldn't communicate sometimes. So, you know, you, you're looking at individuals and leaders and the people that you work with. And, and as my mom always said, take the best from everybody that you work with and leave the rest down. But there's also a learning from the bad behaviors of people as well. And I think you need to take that away and say, you know, that didn't really pay off for them or it's not going to pay off for me. And I shouldn't necessarily go there. And as a result, I only work for companies where the leadership doesn't scream and yell, are not bullies. I mean, it's your life. You don't need to put yourself in um, demanding situations that aren't pleasant. So uh, I've just been very fortunate. Each one of those was a learning. Mark Benioff was a visionary. He still is. It's crazy to understand how he thinks about things. And you learn from that all the time. So I've just been really lucky from the day I left IU to do these different roles and be able to meet and work with, you know, really noted and exceptional leaders in the tech space over time. And, and that might be one of the career things as you start is set yourself up to make sure you're going to be working with the best and, and learning from them. You know, I think back um, to the entrepreneurs and the folks that started companies, those that are most successful actually worked someplace like Hewlett Packard or Apple to learn the ropes and understand what some of the protocols are so that when they started to do their own thing, they understood what they were going to have to do and weren't, you know, underappreciative of what it takes to run a large corporation because they were part of it. It's okay to leave it, which I did numerous times. As you listed, I think, and Jesus, I'm a job hopper, but that's not so bad either. You know, you learn from each of those jobs. You know, as you obviously reading through this book, you find that going through the process of becoming an IPO and becoming a publicly traded company is not easy. I mean, it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of patience. It requires getting the right people in the right roles and making sure everyone's marching in the same direction. You know, so for those who are maybe unfamiliar with the process uh, or haven't had a chance to read your book yet, can you briefly walk through, uh, you know, the process of becoming an IPO? Right. Um, you know, I, I think about a couple different venues here. So one is you got to get the people as you described and know that when you're at IPO people, that's a high risk situation for people coming in. So you need to find people with different skills and broad skills as I described before, because we're all going to do a couple different jobs and are somewhat risk takers, particularly in my role from finance. Hell, nobody's a risk taker in finance. That's why we're in finance, right? We're not risk takers, but you've got to find those individuals willing to take a challenge and go on. So finding the right people, for the right roles with the right skills and backgrounds and are willing to understand the, the vision and the passion and the dream, but apply their skills to a specific area. That's, that to me has been key. And like I said, one of my takeaways from my career is always going to be the people that I hired really turned out to be very successful on their own in the jobs that they created. 
The second part, and there's always debate when I talk to other VC and startup people, you have to put in the systems because, and particularly as, as business grows today, a lot of decisions are made on information. And if you're not in a system that captures the data that's going to facilitate the decision-making, you're not going to run a good business over time. And, and quite frankly, the smaller you are, you put in a system that will help you grow to 10x where you're at. So you don't have to put in systems very often. So you get the efficiency, you get the control. So doing SOCs is easier because the system pretty much drives your process at that point. And you get the data and you need to manage your business based on the data that you see. And with cloud computing that we brought out at Salesforce and everybody's going to today, that data is readily available at your fingertips to make real-time decisions about what's going on with your customer base. At Yext, we provide a solution where we can actually see throughout the global internet sphere, people coming to your site, people searching you on Google, at what point in time of day and what are they searching for? That gives you a huge amount of information in terms of how you present yourself to the public going forward and how it's easier for them to get their questions answered or get those answers and move on. So um, the systems, those are the two big things that I really focus on is getting the right people and getting the right systems in place and then you're ready to go public. And finally, as we begin to, to wrap up, you know, obviously with a lot of work and as organizations, you know, drive and, and really have a big goal in mind and accomplish that goal, there is a tendency at times on the other end of it to, to maybe plateau, you know, maybe to, you know, we work so hard, we accomplish this major thing. Now what? You know, what do we do next? How do we focus our energy? So as, you know, leaders become and, and maybe take the day two or day one of becoming public and they're on the other side, you know, of, of gaining, becoming a publicly traded company, how does the leadership mindset needs to change so they can start channeling that energy and strive for another goal so that that organization doesn't plateau? Right. You know, the, that's um, the critical part of the leader. And we talked about this a little bit earlier is your time horizon changes from, like I said, making payroll to how you run a bigger, more sophisticated company over time. So the senior leadership time horizon really has to shift out three to five years. And it has to be sensitive to what the current state of the environment is, whether it's technology, consumers, whatever. I mean, look, we just changed the world's industry with all this lockdown and everything else. There's going to be new businesses created here because the fact that we can work, we found out we could do more remote. I would love to be at IU, but we can still do this and I'm not there at all with all of you. So it's being, it's changing that time horizon to a little bit longer and then always querying your environment as to what's changing and how it's going to change to keep your company relevant. Even at the winery, at my parents at, at the winery, you know, we went, we started making Chardonnay and then we made Cabernet. And now we have a lineup of 15 or 20 different wines and a couple different locations that we make wines at. So it's that constant moving the ball forward that and the time horizon forward that I think keeps the business fresh, keeps it alive. The vision has to keep getting changed to some degree because things are happening. There's a lot more remote work these days. And how does that impact your business? And honestly, some businesses aren't going to survive, but that's part of the evolution of the, of the business situation that we all live in. There's businesses that have been around for 200 years applaud them like Goldman Sachs and others. And there's businesses that make it 50 years and are not going to make it to 51. So um, it's, it's that changing the time horizon, though, I think is really critical for the leadership of any company in terms of keeping their business growing. 
Steve, I can't resist ending by highlighting your comment that you found in your career that science and numbers are important, but you need a little bit of art to make a really successful bottle of wine or a really successful company. So thank you. As a fellow Kelly, uh, Kelly School alum, I really appreciate how you've helped us understand the marriage between science and art. You've done an excellent job. Thank you. And I really enjoyed reading the book. Again, Steve Cakebread, CFO of Yext and author of the IPO Playbook, an insider's perspective on taking your company public and how to do it right. Steve, just thank you so much for being our guest. We're honored to have you here on the show. It's great. I appreciate all your time. And I I will say in all my career, I'm always looking for Kelly School graduates because they're grounded. They know how to get to the next step and they know how to get it done. So I appreciate the education from the school and I continue to look forward to recruit folks out of IU. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, ID Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.